Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, Long live King Darius. We are all in agreement, we administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors, that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed, an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room. With its windows open toward Jerusalem, he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about his law. Did you not sign a law that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions? Yes, the king replied, that decision stands. It is an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. Then they told the king, that man Daniel, one of the captives from Judah, is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. Hearing this, the king was deeply troubled, and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. In the evening, the men went together to the king and said, Your Majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no law that the king signs can be changed. So at last, the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to him, May your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. A stone was brought over, sorry, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his noble, so no one could rescue Daniel. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and couldn't sleep at all that night. Very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God, whom you serve so faithfully, able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths so that they would not hurt me. For I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. 
The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. Then the king gave orders to arrest the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. He had them thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. The lions leaped on them and tore them apart before they even hit the floor of the den. Then King Darius sent his message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed, and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I'm Adam. I am Assistant Pastor of Discipleship and Events here at Lakeland. And again, happy Pentecost Sunday to you. I wanted to start with a little something different this morning. Um, before we get into our actual chapter for today, I wanted to highlight a very cool connection between the book of Daniel and this day that we celebrate today, the day of Pentecost. If we go back to Daniel chapter 1, we find that after attacking Jerusalem and taking the Hebrew people away into exile, Nebuchadnezzar brings them back to, quote, the land of Shinar, is what the text tells us. So stow that away. Keep that in your mind. Then we move up to Daniel chapter 3, and we find that, that Nebuchadnezzar has built his giant golden statue on, quote, the plain of Dura in the land of Babylon. Now, in pointing out these very specific locations, the author of the book of Daniel is trying to help us recall another famous story from the Old Testament, the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, which we're told occurred, quote, on a plain in the land of Shinar in the land of Babylon. Now, the connections go deeper than just the area where this happened, though. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to gather and unite all peoples, nations, and languages under one banner and for one purpose, worshiping and glorifying him as king. Now, this should immediately raise our antenna because the people at Babel were also trying to unite themselves under one banner and for one purpose, building a giant, huge structure for their own glorification. Now, God thwarted that plan in Genesis 11, if we remember the story, right? He, he came and he, he scattered the people, confusing their language, scattering them all across the land. And from that point on, in the Old Testament, the message of God to his people is consistent and clear. Stay separate. 
set yourselves apart from the people groups you find around you so that you might stay true and close to me and a savior might come from you as my people. Now, what we find happening in Daniel chapter 3 and basically the entire rest of the book of Daniel is Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to reverse God's intervention at Babel. Of course, spoiler alert, Nebuchadnezzar will fail at this. Uh, Someone's going to get him before he's able to finish this job. But we find that God himself reverses his own intervention at Babel at the day of Pentecost. On that day, in the book of Acts, we find all, peop- we find all the people that are gathered there able to speak and understand different languages when they never could before. Why? Because in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's message to his people had now changed. He now says, go forth and be united under one banner for one purpose. To proclaim the good news of what God has done through Christ. Not for your own glorification, of course, but for God's. And this is what we celebrate on Pentecost Sunday. Now, I think this is pretty cool how God worked all this out. Because when I chose the book of Daniel to preach and the dates that I was available, I had no idea that this was going to overlap and work this way. But God certainly did. All right, back to Daniel chapter 6. Now, as we begin chapter 6, we find that a very key theme for this chapter happens to be hidden in a very uh, inconspicuous place, right in plain sight at the very beginning. We're told that Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces. Now you should be saying, who's Darius the Mede? A lot has happened since our last week's sermon. Nebuchadnezzar has died And another Babylonian king named Belshazzar briefly took the throne. But Belshazzar too was killed, and the Medo-Persian empire swooped in to take control of what Babylon had previously ruled over. Now this brings us to Darius, who has now become king over the land and the exiles. Our first important observation then for this morning is that Daniel and the rest of the Hebrew exiles have effectively outlived the Babylonian empire who conquered and exiled them. The Medes and Persians are now in control, but here's Daniel, still very much alive and still in an incredibly important position in this new empire. As our story opens in chapter 6, Darius decides it is high time for some promotions. Now, for anyone who has ever worked in any job ever, you know that there is almost nothing that unmasks and uncovers the depths of human envy and backstabbing like company promotion time. (laughs) 
And our story is no exception. As Daniel, who is Darius's top choice for the position of president, will now be the target of a whole lot of professional jealousy. Now let's stop here for just a moment and focus a little on Daniel as a person. At this stage, Daniel was a much older man than when we last encountered him. He was just a kid in chapter 1, perhaps 15 or 16 years old. And yes, the fact that I think that's a kid dates me a little bit. And now, despite some of the more famous works of art that we might see that are, uh, depict this chapter, in fact, I think we have one that we can show you, that one right there, Despite that picture, Daniel would have been actually probably at least 80 years old in this picture. I hope I look like that at 80. I'm not going to lie. Now, there's a lot we can say about Daniel's character as he's described throughout this book. He is honest. He is an incredibly hard worker. He is smart and discerning. And he is very effective at basically everything he does. Have you ever met a person who is so full of the Holy Spirit, so radiant with the love of Christ, that they were just constantly bursting out the seams with peace and joy? Just being around them made you want to have peace and joy and to find out where they are getting theirs from. Now, there's a term that I like for this idea. It's called being winsome. Daniel was a winsome person. He reminds me a lot of Joseph from Genesis in this way. People who come into contact with Daniel come away impressed and they come away encouraged, wanting to know more about this God who he followed and loved. I don't know how many of you have been watching this play out recently. But there is a current battleground in the Christian world about this very idea. Should we try to be winsome and attempt to engage lovingly the secular culture that we find around us? Or should we take up our swords and fight for our Christian rights and our Christian views? Now, those of you who heard Sermon 1 of the series know the answer, but Daniel 6 reinforces it. It's winsomeness for the win. Now, here's a big reason why this is the right approach. We just don't know what God might be up to at any given point in time. And we have a tendency to underestimate, not overestimate his ability to change hearts, to turn hearts and change minds. God is in the redemption business, and it is still our calling to be able to join him in that anytime and anywhere we can. Now, as winsome as Daniel was, and as pleasant as any of us can try to be, nobody can win over everyone. And no sooner than the text tells us that Darius wanted to put Daniel in charge of the entire kingdom, we find a giant conspiracy to take him down. Professional 
jealousy. This plays such an important role in these leaders and their scheme against Daniel. You see, it wasn't that Daniel cheated or schemed his way into getting this promotion. In an ironic twist, that might have actually played out better with these guys. What they couldn't accept was that they had spent their entire lives sucking up to the king, putting the king first, giving all their loyalty and time and devotion to the king. And Daniel, the guy who was always putting his God first, is the one who gets the promotion. I would definitely put envy at the top of the list for what is driving these high officials. But there are a couple of other things that I also want to point out. One, the unbelieving world will often detest your relationship with God because it fears not having the final say in your life. It fears you giving power to someone or something that it can't influence, that it can't overpower. And two, the unbelieving world doesn't understand your relationship with God. The world isn't of God. It doesn't know and comprehend and apply the truth of the gospel. Of course it will not understand. It doesn't understand what you are talking about when you speak of how the love and peace of Christ has saved you and renewed your spirit. But this simple fact isn't to be protested against. It shouldn't cause anger and hatred and defensiveness on our part. It isn't even to be lamented. It's to be expected. Sesame Street has a letter of the day. I know this because my kids have watched quite a bit of it lately. And today I would like for us to have a calling of the day. What's the calling of the day? Winsomeness. You ready to repeat this with me? What's the calling of the day, kids? Winsomeness. That's right. Having a posture of understanding as opposed to nastiness and ill temper is the way to reflect God's mercy and loving kindness. Daniel handles the hatred and plot against him about as winsomely as possible in this chapter. So, the officials are able to convince Darius to make a law that outlawed praying to anyone but him, or else they would be cast into a den full of lions. And Darius goes along with this plan. Why? They successfully appealed to his ego, his sense of vanity, being the only person in charge, the lone head of state. This is exactly the sort of thing that appeals to the king of a ruthless empire. So Darius signs the law into effect. The officials leave extremely happy. And Daniel? Daniel goes on praying to the Lord, just as he had been doing his entire life. 
Why did Daniel continue to pray? Obviously, for one, he had set up some positive habits in his life, a a rhythm that helped him connect uh, more deeply and consistently with his God. But couldn't he have taken a 30-day break? He knew about this law. He had been serving God faithfully for over 80 years. Would God have held a month against him? No, I believe is the answer to this question. But the question misses the point. Because to Daniel, prayer had nothing to do with laws. It had nothing to do with crises. It had nothing to do even with expectations of God himself. Prayer was about a relationship. Loving God for the sake of God. And notice that Daniel's response here, it isn't a protest. He's not saying, oh yeah, you want to make a law against me praying? Well, stand right there. How about I sit down and pray right in your face? No. The text tells us that he had got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God as he had always done. It was simply the way he lived his life, and no law or plot against him could ever possibly change that. Now at this point, the the scheming officials find Daniel. They see him praying. They go back to King Darius, and they finish off the trap they've set. They inform the king who their target was all along, and Darius is, perhaps a bit surprisingly, upset. You see, he liked Daniel because Daniel was, what's the calling of the day? Winsome. Daniel was a loyal, dependable, likable guy, and Darius enjoyed having him around. But now he saw that he'd been tricked. And the scheming officials remind Darius that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no signed law may be changed or revoked. Now, was this true? Darius certainly goes along with it. But I have to tell you, I don't really think it's true. We're going to get a reversal of this very law at the end of this chapter. Sorry, another spoiler alert. And the book of Esther gives us the same story about irrevocable Persian laws. And what do we find at the end of the book of Esther? The law revoked. It's one of the real perks you see of being a supreme dictator over an incredibly ruthless empire. You basically get to make your own rules. Darius could have saved Daniel here if he really wanted to. He doesn't because he would have lost face. He would have appeared weak and partial toward Daniel, who was a foreigner exile, as the high officials are quick to point out to Darius. There was no political gain to be had here, despite Darius' personal desire. 
to pardon Daniel. At the end of the day, then, Darius chooses to sacrifice Daniel rather than tarnish his own reputation and status as king. I want to continue our Tale of Two Kings theme that we started last week and compare this to how King Jesus treats his beloved subjects. Jesus chose to save the world by becoming a helpless baby born to a lower-class family in a nowhere town. Jesus voluntarily lived a life of poverty throughout his ministry, having nowhere to lay his head and constantly depending on the gifts of others for his food and his travel. Jesus allowed himself to be ridiculed and treated like a criminal, though he had committed no crime in order to pardon his people. When it comes to our king, reputation and status always, always take a back seat to sacrificial love. So Darius begrudgingly orders the execution of Daniel. Though he leaves him with a bit of a surprising little pep talk. (laughs) He says, May your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. Then he orders a giant stone to be rolled in front of the den, and he leaves Daniel to be killed by the lions. Now again, how winsome How likable was Daniel? Darius, a pagan unbeliever, and a man so powerful that he did not have to answer to anybody, spent the rest of the night tossing and turning and praying to Daniel's God to come and rescue him. Now, let's be honest. This whole story is pretty cool but I think this might be my favorite part. And another crazy twist of irony in this part of the story. Darius, in his royal quarters, with his silk sheets and pajamas, and guarded by his royal army, suffers a sleepless night, while Daniel, tossed into a den full of hungry lions, sleeps like he's at a Ritz-Carlton spa. You see, true peace comes not from one's status or possessions or even one's circumstances, but from the presence and provision of God. A quick aside, I almost said that he was sleeping like a baby, but I've had multiple babies, and I still do not understand that axiom. I will tell you that. It makes no sense. So as Darius leaps out of bed in the morning, he goes to check on Daniel, and he encounters quite the miracle. They roll away the stone from the mouth of the den, and Daniel comes walking out, alive, with not a scratch found on him. And Daniel explains that God sent an angel 
to close the mouths of the lion so that they could not harm him. And that God had done this because Daniel had been found innocent in God's sight. The question you might be asking yourself this morning is, can I be like Daniel? Can I be so utterly faithful to God that I can stare unwavering into the abyss of punishment and certain death and refuse to submit? Can I muster enough courage to be able to say, throw me into that den of lions and do your worst? It's a good question. It feels like an important question. But if we're really being honest, it's a problematic question. Because often, usually, almost always, the answer is no. We can't. We won't. We will be overwhelmed by the waves of culture crashing against us. We will be easily distracted and coerced into trading our allegiance to God for an allegiance to this world, despite how strong our intentions are. Now, this might sound like a real downer at this point in the sermon, but there's good news for us within it. Let's go back to Daniel's interactions with King Darius before Daniel was about to be tossed into the lion's den because it has some very important implications for us. As the king is giving his farewells and giving Daniel his pep talk, he gets one thing right and one thing wrong. When Darius says, may your God rescue you, he gets it right. It is Daniel's God and only Daniel's God who has the strength and the power and the authority to override Darius's laws and save Daniel. Darius himself felt helpless to help Daniel through his own inability to buck the system and his own unwillingness to risk contempt and embarrassment. And he realized that Daniel's only remaining lifeline was God. But when Darius implies that God might save Daniel because Daniel served God so faithfully, he gets it wrong. It was not true that Daniel's devotion to God is what saved him. The message of this chapter cannot possibly be to be like Daniel, not only because we can't, but because Daniel couldn't. Not even Daniel could be like Daniel. 
Not if what we mean by being like Daniel is being constantly courageous and faithful to God at all times. More than 70 years have passed between the events of chapter 1 and the events of our chapter for this morning. What are the chances that at some point Daniel had moments of failure? What are the chances that at some point Daniel didn't measure up? That he didn't stay completely faithful to the mission and the kingdom of God? 100% is the answer. Of course he didn't always do it. He's human. That's not why God loved and saved Daniel. And that's not why he loves and saves us. You see, the story isn't actually about us. And it isn't actually about Daniel. Daniel points us forward to another story about another man. A man who was also falsely accused. A man who was also unfairly punished. A man who was also thrown into a den with a large stone rolled in front of it and left for dead. And a man who walked back out of that den unscathed with death having absolutely no say over him. But this man that we're talking about, he was a better Daniel who not only faced possible death, but experienced actual death so that all God's children could be found like Daniel innocent in God's sight. Whose empty tomb means not only that his own earthly life is redeemed, but the defeat of death itself and the promise of eternal life for all. Jesus is the hero of this story and every story. It is Christ who saves and Christ alone. The point of every story. And the point to our story is never the faithfulness of the people to God, but the faithfulness of God to his people. That is a good thing. That is a really good thing. A thing worth celebrating this morning. And the most mysterious and amazing thing is, once we begin to believe this, that it is Christ alone who can do it, and we can only just put our faith in him, we will begin to find that we've become more courageous and more faithful than we've ever been before. I'd like to finish this morning with actually a quick preview of next week's sermon. 
which is the final sermon in our series. And we are going to put ourselves in the shoes of the Hebrew exiles, and we're going to ask, along with them, some pretty important questions. Does God even exist? If so, is he really in charge? And if so, what is he going to do about all this? And the really cool thing is, we've already gotten a preview of the answers to those questions right here in this chapter. And the words are spoken not by a God-fearing, church-going Hebrew, but by the unbelieving pagan dictator. After Daniel's life was saved, Darius proclaims, He is the living God, and he endures forever. He rescues and saves his people. That's a great place for our hearts to stop and rest this morning. But there is no room for shame. There is no room for guilt. There is no room for putting pressure on ourselves to live up, to be like Daniel, to be constantly courageous and faithful to you. We want to be. Of course that's a good thing. You know that. But you have promised us that you love us no matter what. You have saved us despite what we could ever possibly do in our lives for you. This life, this world, this message of the gospel, it is about what you have already done for us. May that wash over our hearts this morning. May it change us. May it transform us. May it give us, interestingly enough, an incredible desire to be more courageous and faithful to you. We love you so much. We pray everything in the hopeful, loving name of Jesus this morning. And all God's people said, amen. amen.